I'm bringing a glass of water up here because I've been losing my voice the last couple of days, so if I start coughing, please bear with me. Uh, first of all, thank you for that great introduction, Brian, and I appreciate our friendship over the years. And uh, your daughter is now in Haiti, I understand, helping out with the reconstruction there. <clears throat> she was wonderful to have, and it's an honor to be invited to be here with you today. Um, since my Harvard education was brought up, uh, I have to tell a joke now. Uh, and that, it's not really a joke, it's a story that's funny. In my very first race for Congress, I had a very, uh, probably the meanest, most difficult race I've had was my primary battle to run for the U.S. House. And my primary opponent <clears throat> used to go around, and, and we probably had 30 debates around at every county Republican meeting in the state. And uh, he used to go to every one of the debates or every one of the meetings that we were both asked to be at and start his speech by saying, how many of you want another Harvard lawyer in Washington? Which, by the way, worked really well in Idaho. <laughs> and so I was trying to figure out how to deal with this. And my wife sat at, at one of the meetings where there were about 500 people present. She decided to take things into her own hands. And, so, and it was a meeting where there were round tables like this. And she sat right about where you are, Ralph, at the front table. He st stood up and says, how many of you want another Harvard lawyer in Washington? And she stood up and she said, I do. <laughs> and the entire crowd erupted in applause. And she sat right there. Every time he, we had another meeting or a speech, he never said it again and I won the race. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> let me just uh, talk. I think you probably expect me to talk a little bit about the debt ceiling battle and the uh, Gang of Six, and I will do that. And then my understanding is that the format here is that I can hopefully stop rather soon and throw it open for questions and, and uh, get engaged with you in some dialogue. Uh, but let me start out talking about the Gang of Six. And I, I want to give just a little bit of background about how I got, in, got involved in it because it was an interesting route. Uh, back a couple of years ago, I became convinced that we weren't going to deal with our debt crisis unless we had some kind of a BRAC process where Congress created a commission, put something in front of the Congress that they had to vote on, and then forced it. And so I started uh, being supportive of that idea, the idea that Judd Gregg and Kent Conrad, ultimately as the budget chairman and ranking member, put forward in legislation. But as they started to move it forward in legislation, uh, the dynamic in the country changed, in my opinion, in a negative way. Uh, I don't mean to sound partisan here, but President Obama was elected, and there was a lot of talk starting to come out about how the, the way we should solve our problem, uh, you'll recall, is to establish a VAT tax and add a brand new taxing engine on top of the income tax, and that uh, really our problem was that we didn't have a, a more a powerful enough taxing engine in the country and that that was the way we should address our fiscal problem. And I became concerned that the momentum was going to be used to use a fiscal commission to establish a VAT tax. <clears throat> so I ended up switching positions and opposing it. It was brought to the floor of the Senate. I voted against it. It failed. And uh, so then the president, by executive order, created his own fiscal commission. And as you'll recall, it uh, had six senators, three of each party, six House members, three of each party, and six appointees of the president. And uh, by my math, that was 12 Democrats and six Republicans. Again, not a good start with regard to the commission idea. And uh, at that point, 
I was asked to come in and visit with Mitch McConnell, and he asked me to be one of the three senators, Republicans, who served on this commission. So I, I said, Mitch, wait a minute. They're trying to put a VAT tax in place, and I won't have anything to do with that. It's 12 to 6, and this is just a bad idea. And, and he said, look, I understand all of that, but it's real, and the Republicans have to play in this. And so I want you to be one of the guys who does it. So I said, okay. And to my delight, the six nominees of the president, for the most part, were not partisan. They were uh, really more private sector oriented people who wanted to find a true solution to the problem. And at very early stages in our discussions, they took the VAT tax idea themselves off the table. I mean, they, they basically led the commission to the notion that establishing a, a new taxing engine for the country was not the direction we should go. <clears throat> and in fact, they said, if you want to talk about revenue as a part of the equation, the way we should focus on revenue is to reform our tax code. You, if, you, if you look at the Internal Revenue Code, in my opinion, if you tried to make one that w was more unfair, more complex, more expensive to comply with, and more made us more anti-competitive in global economics, you'd be hard-pressed to do it better than we've done it. And uh, what we need is to reform the code. And that's what these uh, members of the commission started uh, pushing for. Uh, which is something that I've been saying and fighting for most of my career. And so I started thinking, you know, maybe this commission is going to turn into something real. And it did. We put everything on the table. And by that I mean we put uh, revenue on the table, but in the form of reforming the code and generating growth in the economy, which is the way we ought to put revenue on the table. We put uh, all discretionary spending, including defense spending, on the table. And although I think one of the weaker parts of the Commission's approach uh, was the entitlement sector, it did at least begin the process of getting into entitlement reform as well. Uh, and it put some, not, not the best, but some enforcement measures in place to try to help us keep on task. Uh, and the reason <clears> – <throat> I'm going to move now to what the, the Gang of Six has done because in my opinion, the two most important parts of what the Gang of Six are, is doing are the tax reform and the enforcement, because we are recognizing that, that you know you can say anything you want about budgets and reforming our spending patterns in Washington and so forth, but if you don't ever get to the second year of a budget, and by the way, I've been in Congress since 1993 now, and I have never lived in year two of a budget. Uh, as you know, every year we put out a five or a ten-year plan. All of the real reform and all of the real pain is in year two or three or four or five, and usually it's in year six or seven or eight or nine. And uh, and then and the first year has zero pain in it. In fact, the first year is increased growth, increased spending. And we do the first year, and then the next year we come back with another five or ten-year plan with all the pain in the out years, and we never get to year two. And one of the things we've got to do is we've got to stop Congress from having the vehicles to basically get around budgets, and then we, and, and we've got to stick to budgets. So to make a long story short, uh, the Fiscal Commission ultimately, as you know, came up with a plan. Eleven of the 18 commissioners voted for it. it by the President's terms, it had – and actually this was an agreement with Nancy Pelosi, then the Speaker, and uh, Senator Reid that if we could get 14 votes – that they would agree to let it come forward like a commission plan and be voted on. Uh, we didn't get the 14, we got 11, which I will tell you is 
enough, it's more than 60%, it's enough to pass uh, a bill in the Senate and the House. But it wasn't enough to get it before the Senate or the House. So a group of us got together afterwards and said, you know, there's too much good in this work product for us to let it drop. Why don't we try to see if we can knock off the rough edges and get some bipartisan support and bring it forward ourselves on a bipartisan basis. And that's what generated the Gang of Six. There were actually about 30 senators in that group, uh, but they knew that 30 senators negotiating wasn't really very viable. So, <laughs> so they asked six of us to do it. The four remaining senators that were on the commission, two had retired, or one didn't vote for it. That was Senator Bacchus. And, uh, but the four who had voted for it, and then Saxby Chambliss and Mark Warner. So we were tasked to try to knock off the rough edges to negotiate it into a point where we could actually vote for it on the Senate floor. And I just want to back up and, and restate two things. I voted for it. I was one of the 11 who voted for it. It had stuff in it that I can't stand and, and probably couldn't vote for if it were actually a bill on the floor of the Senate. And, I, and that's true about every other one of the elected officials who voted for it. In fact, Kent Conrad said it, I think, the best when he voted for it at the meeting, he said, you know, the only thing worse than voting for this thing is voting against it because we've got to move the process forward. It's too important to the country for all the reasons that you know. So uh, the same was true for the Democrats. The, the very Democrats who voted for this plan could probably not have voted for it had it been a real bill. And so we decided to see if we could make it a bill that we, in fact, could vote for, and that's what we've been trying to do for the last six months. And, and we have been making a lot of progress. Uh, as you know, uh, Tom Coburn at one point stepped out of the process, uh, primarily because he didn't think we were making enough progress in the area of entitlement reform, uh, which I agree with him on. It was one of the sticking points in our negotiations. <clears throat> and uh, I'm still hopeful that we will either be able to get time to come back or that we will be able to work out a way to fill the hole that he left uh, because it's, it's very critical politically, as you can, I think, obviously see, that we not uh, continue negotiating without filling that hole. So since Tom's departure, we have not technically been negotiating, but we have been continuing to farm out the ideas and, and expand the discussion with other members of our caucuses and uh, identify ways, areas, where we need to continue refining the work product and ways to, to refine it that will help us to build ultimate bipartisan support. We have a lot of interest in the Senate. Quickly, I know you probably all know this, but I'm going to run over what it does. I think it's different, uh, just far different than the battle we're having over the debt ceiling right now in this sense. It's, it's very comprehensive. What we're fighting over on the debt ceiling is what can we get done in order to get the votes to increase the debt ceiling and uh, over what term. And the term we're talking about is a couple of months to through next November. What we're talking about on the Gang of Six is how do we change the fiscal paradigm of America and literally have a course structure resetting that will put us on a pathway to long-term fiscal solvency. And uh, what we did was put everything on the table, literally. We, we put Social Security on the table and uh, made it solvent permanently. We put, uh, like I said, entitlements were on the table, though not well enough, but they were on the table and made major uh, progress in reducing entitlement spending pressures on the budget. We put uh, very uh, stringent spending 
restraints, uh, caps on domestic, or excuse me, d discretionary spending. And uh, this all ran for a 10-year period of time. And uh, we reformed the tax code. The spending, and, and, the, and I'll talk about that in just a second, but the spending portion of this, let me, let me say it differently. The fiscal impact of this was a, what the commission did was about a $4 trillion impact over 10 years in terms of reducing our debt by $4 trillion over, or our spending by over $4 trillion over the next 10 years. Um, and I want to say two other things, and then I'll quickly mention the debt ceiling battle and throw it open for questions. If we have had had, if we had had the ability to pass it, uh, it would have, I think, given us the breathing space as a nation to do what we need to do really to fix the problem. The four trillion dollar bill, believe it or not, is not a, a fix. It is, it is a reset, and it gives us the ability to do the fix we want. But uh, I'll put it this way. If, if we were to pass and do our $4 trillion bill uh, at the end of the 10 and stick with it at the, through it to the end of the 10 years, and by the way, we put an enforcement mechanism in place if we ever get there that will hold for 10 years. It will hold. And uh, if we were to do that, at the end of the 10 years, we would still have a debt-to-GDP ratio of 72%, which is unacceptable, except it won't be 101%, which is what it would be if we do nothing. And that's public debt, not gross debt. The gross debt would be 186% of GDP. And uh, under our plan, uh, we bend that curve that is now starting to exponentially skyrocket and bend it down. But it takes us 10 years to go to, to get it onto the downward curve. It's a slower process than I'd like, but this was a bipartisan process. Uh, by the way, if you look at the Paul Ryan plan or if you look at the CAPS bill that some of us in the Senate have put together, uh, they're all about the same. I think the Ryan bill uh, at the end of 10 years is 69% of GDP. Ours was 72% of GDP. Uh, the CAPS bill we have in the Senate, I think, is in that range, 69 to 72%. <clears throat> so my point is, if we really want to get ourselves where we want to be, which is to balance, or at least on a pathway seriously headed down, we need to do the $4 trillion plan three times. And we probably will have to do that. That's, that's how serious it is for us to really get on the right path. <clears throat> now, that being said, uh, two last quick things. On tax reform, we took the zero option approach, which means that we, we said we are going to eliminate what has become called tax preferences or tax expenditures. I like to call them tax preferences. Um, but we took every deduction, credit, or what have you in the Internal Revenue Code and eliminated it, zero option, and then brought the six income tax rates into three rates and brought them down so that the highest rate was 23 percent, the lowest, uh, the middle rate was 12 percent, and the lowest rate was 8 percent. Then we said, we know that you can't actually get rid of all of the uh, deductions and credits in the code. For example, the mortgage interest deduction, uh, charitable giving deduction, retirement contributions, and so forth. <clears throat> and so we said, we will allow some to be built back. But that will be done at the discretion of Congress or the Finance Committee as it works on the details of this. But if you build them back, you have to raise those rates to pay for it. And so we authorized a range of rates. Uh, 
from 23%, which is what we set, up to 28% if they want to build some of them back in, and from 12% back to 18%, and from 8% back to 12%. That's on the individual side. On the corporate side, we uh, said that the, the corporate rate must be reduced on a revenue-neutral basis to the highest individual rate, so that would be either 23 or 28 or something in the middle, <clears throat> and uh, that we would move to a territorial system and <clears throat> we also eliminated the alternative minimum tax, which I think w was a, a very good tax plan. There's a lot of good tax plans out there, but th I thought that, that uh, probably the best thing about what we were doing was that. So where does all that fit now with the uh, negotiations at Blair House with Vice President Biden? I'm not in that room. And by the way, I think it's notable that not one member of the Gang of Six is in that room. That was not by accident. Uh, the, the direction of the Gang of Six was threatening, in my opinion, to both political parties and the, and the White House and the leadership of both parties in Congress. And uh, I won't get into the politics of why unless you want to ask a question about that. But, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in, in terms of what's happening at, at Blair House, as I see it, I, I don't know because I'm not in the room, but from what I can tell, it's not going well. Uh, the Republicans are insisting that taxes not be on the table. The Democrats are insisting that they are. The Republicans are insisting that uh, entitlement reform be on the table, and the Democrats are insisting that they not be. Now, both sides are saying, well, we'll do one if you'll do – well, actually, the Republicans are not willing to give on taxes, but the, the Democrats are, are saying we will not do entitlement reform unless you do taxes. And, uh, and they're not talking the kind of tax reform that I just described. They're talking about increasing tax rates. And uh, one of the, like I say, one of the good things about, I think, the Gang of Six approach was that we got out of that old model of tax battles of whether to raise or lower rates and said, let's reform the code and generate more revenue in that way. Uh, the Blair Group has not gotten into that discussion. And uh, I don't know where it's going to turn out. You've probably read all the reports that I've read that there's discussion now of everything from uh, trying to punt and just do it a short-term extension, and, and there's not much stomach for that in the House of Representatives. Uh, Speaker Boehner, Denny, has got a – I'm not – he's got an incredible conundrum on his hands with uh, the number of members of his caucus who probably won't vote for anything and the number of his caucus and the Democrats who would vote for something that is wholly unacceptable to the majority of uh, the Republican members of the caucus. And I don't know how the House threads that needle. It's, it's going to be very interesting politics. I wish I could tell you I had it all figured out. But one thing I do have a pretty strong conviction of is that at the end of the battle on the debt ceiling, and Congress will ultimately increase the debt ceiling, uh, we will still have a debt crisis. And the Gang of Six is still working and still operating, and, and I believe that uh, if we can get past the, the final hurdles, and we still have a couple of big ones, but if we can get past the final hurdles to bring together a deal among the Gang of Six, that we will still have an opportunity to discuss these ideas and to roll them out <coughs> Excuse me, in a climate uh, in which uh, it is increasingly imperative that we do so. I haven't talked at all about uh, all of the information that we gleaned during the Fiscal Commission's deliberations last year, 
that should literally scare every American into uh, being willing to negotiate and to get a deal done. Uh, but the, the fact is we are screaming ahead at light speed toward a cliff, and we don't have very long before the economy will reset itself. And that will be more damaging to every interest group, every American, and every concern than any of the plans that are on the table right now. I will tell you one thing that, that one economist told us. He said, after these economists, after they explain with all their charts what's going to happen and, and uh, put the fear of God into you, uh, <clears throat> one of them said, and every other one in the room uh, instantly agreed, that the most important thing that we could do among all these options we were looking at is something. In other words, I mean, it had to be something real. And, and frankly, a couple of trillion dollars isn't real enough to really get us there. But something that will convince the world markets, particularly the bond markets, that we are going to grapple with our fiscal crisis. And if we can create that confidence, and that's what I believe the fiscal, the Gang of Six plan does, uh, then we will have the breathing room to work through this. So the bad news is that we are facing an incredibly great risk. I think it's the greatest risk I've seen America face in my lifetime and maybe forever. And uh, the good news is that we have time and the ability to fix it if we will do it. So let me stop there and throw it open for questions.